So the world's longest ongoing architectural project is a Catholic church in Barcelona, Spain. Uh, it's a basilica. It's called the Sagrada Familia. Has anybody been there? I know some people have been to Spain. Some of you, no? No? Nobody's been there? All right. Let's all go. Uh, anyway, it comes from uh, the genius of this man named Antony Gaudi. He was known as Gar- God's architect. Work began on this church back in 1882, and it continues still today. Uh, In their story on Gaudi, 60 Minutes asked the question, why would a church take so long to build? Uh, It has been a long process, and I'd encourage you at some point uh, to go check out just pictures online of this thing. I mean, I don't don't think you've ever seen a building quite like this one with the carvings and uh, just the influence of, of nature and all of these different things going on. Uh, it's been a long process. Uh, it took 128 years of work before even the first mass was even held at this so-called church, right? It just was a building, uh, but more than a century for it to start serving its intended purpose, right? I'm sure Gaudi wouldn't have liked that. His biographer wrote this, Gaudi felt his duty as an architect was that a building should reflect the glory of God and that God was working through him as the architect. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul reveals that the longest ongoing church building project is not the Sagrada Familia. It is us right here and now, you and me in this place. Christ has been building his church for about 2,000 years now. It's not made out of sandstone. It's made out of living stones. And his church is not meant to sit dormant for a hundred years or just be sort of a a monument to look at that tourists like to visit from time to time. This church is meant to be alive and growing and growing together as Christ's powerful salvation continues to revolutionize and recreate us according to his image. And so we begin in verse 19 and we read this, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Okay, so he says you're no longer strangers and foreigners. But wait, aren't we called strangers and foreigners in a different part of the Bible? We are indeed. The Apostle Peter uses those words specifically of us in his first letter. Uh, But we're not strangers to the Lord. We're strangers to the unbelieving world. We're exiles on our way home to heaven. We are a new, special group of people moving through life, separated from the path of this world. In fact, in antiquity, in the early centuries of the church, opponents of Christians would sometimes label them as genus tertium, the third race. Neither Jew nor Gentile, neither Greek nor barbarian. No, they were something else. They were the third race. And in reality, it was true. Christians are a third race. Paul uses three analogies to describe the church in our verses. The first is that we are citizens. Citizens of what? What country? What kingdom? Well, not citizens of Israel in the sense that the church does not replace Israel. We want to be clear on that. There are Christian traditions that teach that the church has replaced Israel. Israel failed uh, too bad 
too badly and too often. And so therefore, God has said, all right, I'm going to quit Israel, and now the church is Israel. Uh, The problem with that is it makes no sense of the future prophecies that we see in the Bible. And it's also a pretty major problem because, let's be real, are we going to be more faithful than Israel was? Are we better than the people of Israel? Well, you can't honestly say yes. If God is going to quit them, why wouldn't he quit us? We're not perfect. We make mistakes. We fall short. We don't live up to um, the, the gifts and the power that he's made available to us. No, the church does not replace Israel. Now, God has put his program for ethnic Israel, the nation of Israel, on hold during what we call the church age. But they are still his people. He still will keep his promises to them. He really will. And so our citizenship is in something else. It's a new thing. It's the church. This is what Paul has been revealing throughout this letter. And he says, hey, like the Lord has given me a mystery to reveal, and it's how the church has been established. You know, nothing makes you appreciate American citizenship like being in a strange land overseas. Some of you have had this experience. I remember the very small comfort of having the U.S. Embassy's phone number and address tucked into my pocket while we were in Colombia or places of uh, certain parts of Peru. Uh, I don't know how much a piece of paper was actually going to help me, but it was just kind of nice to know, okay, if I could get to a phone somehow, you know, if they allowed me to make a phone call, I could call the embassy. And because I'm an American citizen, maybe I would get some help. In, all, in the Roman Empire, there were all sorts of different status levels, all sorts of different, you know, sort of categories that you might fall into. To be a foreigner, the word used here, meant that you had no rights at all. To be a stranger was something different. It meant that you had some rights. You were sort of residing there in the empire. But then there was citizenship. And there were all sorts of different types of citizenship. It was complex and somewhat unfair But Paul explains that in the church, there are no levels of citizenship. We are all equal in that regard. It doesn't matter where you're from. doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your skills are or what your weaknesses are. In Christ, we're all equal citizens thanks to the Lord. We all receive the rights, the freedoms, the access, the privileges, and the responsibilities of being citizens of God's kingdom. We are no longer strangers to the Lord. No longer foreigners to his covenants and promises. This was the, um, the line of thought that Paul developed in our last study. This spiritual citizenship makes us countrymen with all other Christians, comrades together. We live in an increasingly isolated, individualistic, us versus everyone else society, and that's not a good thing. Uh, the church is something we're called to be in together. We're called to be with one another, a body built together, gathering and supporting and connecting with one another. Now, this spiritual citizenship is incredible. It comes with privileges and allotments and authorities and power. Paul's been talking about these since the beginning of the book. But it also means that we must give up world citizenship and some of its so-called benefits, right? I was looking yesterday on a .gov site 
about how to renounce your U.S. citizenship, and they have a very helpful <laughs> website about how to do that. It, I'm probably on some weird list now because I was searching it and reading it. This guy spent a lot of time on this how to renounce your citizenship website, uh, but it's actually pretty straightforward. Uh, I didn't know that you can accidentally renounce your citizenship if you run for office in a different country. Uh, they said under certain, cer- certain circumstances, doing so will forfeit your American citizenship. So no becoming, you know, like the mayor of Bogota or anything like that, in case you were thinking about running as a third party, maybe. But uh, we understand, right, even on the human level, that allegiance has to be given to one place, right? We are no longer citizens of this world. Not really. We are citizens of God's forever kingdom, and we live as exiles in this world. Now, as exiles, we are not meant to behave with hostility with the world around us. Quite the opposite. We're to behave in the world with grace and mercy and giving truth and compassion and all of these things, but we do turn our allegiance to the Lord and away from the world. And we need to remember that. We need to remember that any time uh, we need to interact with um, governments or when we need to interact with um, uh, just the, some of these different decisions that we have to make. Now, does that mean that we are anarchists? No. Does that mean we don't serve our actual country, the United States? No. As kingdom citizens, we're called to be the very best American citizens that we can be. We're called to submit to the government. We're called to pray for our leaders. We're called to involve ourselves at whatever level the Lord uh, sends us into, right? So serving your country, a good thing. Serving your community, a good thing. Obeying your government, a necessary thing, a good thing. Um, But at the same time, on a philosophical level, we always want to remember that primarily who I am, my identity is found in Christ and found in His kingdom. And right now, as I live as a good American citizen, thankful for my citizenship here, we also want to remember that I am on my way to a forever kingdom. America is not a forever kingdom. Rome was not a forever kingdom. They used to have inscriptions around the city of Ephesus talking about how Rome was the forever kingdom, and it's not true. Christ's kingdom is the forever kingdom, and we have an incredible part in it, and we want to always keep that in perspective as we live as the very best citizens that the United States can find. Paul uses next an analogy of a household. Now, compared to citizenship in a country, this is an image of greater intimacy. Uh, There are hundreds of millions of Americans, uh, American citizens, that are citizens like you that are walking around right now that you'll never meet and you've never met, right? Uh, It's not very intimate, right? But a household is not like that. You know everybody who lives in your house, I hope. Um, You know, there's no no, uh, strangers you've never met in your house. If there is, it's a problem. Then you call some fellow citizens to help you (laughs) get those people out, right? But this is an image in a household of togetherness and sharing and caring and knowing and family. So don't think of a big Downton Abbey house. If you were Downton Abbey fans when, it, when the show was on, um, it was all about this community 
really two separate communities that lived within this big house. And you had, you know, just the servants downstairs, the lowly downstairs people, and then the important upstairs people, right? So you don't, I don't want you to think that in God's household, we're the lowly downstairs people while the Lord and his very special saints are upstairs doing whatever their own thing is. Jesus said, listen, I don't call you servants anymore. We serve the Lord and we do want to be servants, of course. But Jesus said in John 15, I don't call you servants anymore. I've called you friends. And of course, God calls us his children. Life in Christ is one of joy and intimacy and nearness to our Lord. It's, it's to be family with him. God, our father, right? Uh, with other Christians as brothers and sisters, not just fellow workers, fellow slaves, fellow employees. As children, we are to be submissive and obedient to our father. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the king. It's God who sets the rules and the schedule and the course and all of that. Uh, Children don't do that in a house, do they? Uh, When they do, things don't go very well for the family. The family doesn't wake up in the morning and then sit down at the table and say, okay, little toddler Timmy, what are the things we're going to do today? And what time are we going to do them? And how should we do them? If a family was to do that, it's a recipe for disaster, right? If you've ever had a toddler in the house, you want them to have as little power and control as possible. Right? Because it's, it's the grown-ups. It's the father that needs to make the decision ideally, right? Or the parents, mom and dad, who are making this decision because they have the strength, they have the love, they have the wisdom and the insight, they know what should be done. And so to a much, much greater, more magnified degree, God the Father is the one in charge. And he says, okay, and I've given authority to Jesus Christ. He's the head. He's the king all things under his feet, and we as God's children are to be submitting to him, obeying him. Verse 20 says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. So Paul moves to a third analogy, first citizens, second uh, a household, and now here a building. We are a building. And this building we find is carefully planned. Uh, when you see pictures of the Sagrada Familia, the complexity is stunning. Uh, you understand why it could be uh, a building that took you know, almost 150 years now to build. Gaudi had meticulous plans and models that he mocked up so that the building would be accomplished properly. Sadly, during the Spanish Civil War in the year 1936, anarchists broke into the the basilica and destroyed all of the original plans and the models that he had made. And so later engineers who have taken up this work, uh, well, they have to make their best guess, provide their best efforts as to what Gaudi's original plans were, what he maybe was wanting what he had designed. They kind of just have to figure it out without being sure. Not so with the church. It was masterfully designed, carefully planned. The foundation has been laid. The blueprints have been given. And that foundation, Paul says, was the apostles and the prophets. But wait again, I thought that Christ was the foundation. Doesn't, isn't that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3? Yes, he does. Christ is the foundation. And here we'll see he's the cornerstone of the foundation. But Paul is explaining that Christ, as he was laying the foundation for this new thing, the church, he used these New Testament apostles and prophets to establish the church and through these individuals reveal the word of God and explain the doctrines and teachings necessary for the church to be built. 
the ongoing work of the church for the next 2,000 years and all the years that we have left until the Lord comes, all of that work flows from this original foundation. The original plans are still in place. The original design is still working. Uh, They haven't been lost in the Spanish Civil War or any other turmoil that the world has seen. We have the Word of God, the fully inspired, infallible Word of God. We've got it. The foundation has been laid. And this is why we reject Joseph Smith or Charles Taze Russell or anyone else who comes along and says, guess what? I have new revelation. I have something additional. I have a new method, a new design for how the church is going to work, what the church is, what the church is about, and what you're supposed to do. I have an adjustment to the New Testament, some new revelation from God. We reject that because the foundation has been laid. And Paul is very clear on this issue in Galatians chapter 1. He says, but even if we, speaking of himself, he knew that he was not perfect. He was fallible, right? He he wasn't going to do this, but he said, hey, even if we or an angel from God or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. He says, you just reject it out of hand because the foundation is laid. It is done. Now, it's not that anything the apostles said was revelation from God right? If that was true, we would have a lot more books in the New Testament because we know, for example, that Paul wrote other letters. They're referenced in the New Testament and we don't have copies of them. Does that mean they were bad? No. But it was something that the Holy Spirit determined we did not need in the New Testament. So it's not that everything a New Testament prophet said or everything an apostle said was new revelation from God. The apostles were fallible people. Paul references this. He says, hey, even if we taught you something else. Or we know that um, the apostle Peter, great man, great lover of the Lord and servant of the Lord. He was an apostle, but we know that even he had to be publicly corrected by Paul at one point because of some of the choices that he was making, right? But through this foundation, the apostles and the prophets, God delivered what we needed, the 27 books of the New Testament. There are 27, no more, no less. There are no more apostles today because no one fits the biblical criteria. Uh, the most important being that you had to see the risen Christ. And there are some people today who claim to have seen the risen Christ, but it can't be corroborated. There are no apostles today. And there are not prophets today in the sense that Paul is using here. The gift of prophecy still exists and can be exercised. We believe that the gifts of the Spirit continue But there is no new revelation which will need to be added to the New Testament, right? There's no prophet that's going to come along and say, hey, the Lord has spoken to me, and now I have the new, the letter to the Hanfordians, and now we're going to add this as book 28 to the New Testament, and by the way, it says a bunch of weird stuff, right? That's not going to happen. The foundation is laid. It's done. In this building, Christ is the cornerstone. Now, linguists argue over whether Paul means the foundational cornerstone, the first that was laid, or the capstone, the last that is put in place. Both have a biblical basis. Uh, we see uh, examples of either one of them, like in the, in the Old Testament. There's passages in Isaiah that you could turn to. When Peter talks about the, the stone, the cornerstone, in, in, in that section of his letter, he really interestingly, he uses different words, three different words when using, when talking about the stone, all in the same breath, right? 
And that's because, okay, well, is Jesus the first stone or the last stone? Well, of course, he's both. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the first and the last. He's the foundation and the center and the most highly exalted. He's the basis and the culmination. It's all of Jesus. It's all in Christ, by Christ, for Christ. Now, in our context here in Ephesians 2, Paul seems to be speaking of the lower foundational cornerstone. That's the first one laid in these building projects, the one that provides stability for the building. This was a load-bearing stone on which the rest of the structure would rest. This stone would provide the lines and the measures for all the other parts of the building so that the building could stand square and, and, and secure. One source says this, in ancient structures, the cornerstone was placed at a right angle joining two walls with the royal name inscribed on it to signify the ruler who took credit for the building's erection. We cannot overestimate the importance of the cornerstone and the foundation. It's the most important thing. R. Kent Hughes writes, if we tamper with the foundation, the building will crumble. That makes sense, right? But we need to be really serious about that when we're talking about the church. We can't tamper with the foundation. As we live out our Christianity, we must adhere to Christ's design, which was revealed through the foundational work of the apostles' doctrine and the revelation shared by the New Testament prophets. Being the church, therefore, is not just about responding to what we feel is important, not just reacting to whatever the current social issue is. Rather, church life flows from the foundation that is described here. And that's why we care a lot about studying the Bible here at Calvary and studying it systematically, because we're being told, not just here, but all over the scripture, that the Bible is providing the guidance and the design necessary to build up the church. It matters what the apostles said, and it means that we, we need to align ourselves with it. Because if we're not aligned with the cornerstone, how can the building be built? How can the building stand? How can we fulfill the function that is being revealed to us right here? And he says that you are a part of the building, the church, the church universal and expressed through a local fellowship like the one we're in right now. And the Lord says, I'm going to build this building and it's going to be square and it's going to be strong and it's going to stand and it's going to do all of these different things. And therefore, it must be aligned to the cornerstone and built upon the foundation, not just built all over. Well, let's try this foundation. Let's try that foundation. We'll have a wing over here that just floats in the air. We'll have a wing over here that's kind of on water. And we have to build on the foundation that has been given to us. Verse 21 says, in him, in Christ, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So it's not just a building, it is a temple, which is a very specific kind of building. It has a specific set of purposes. It's the home to specific activities. It's a special place unlike other places, right? If you walk into a temple, uh, there are certain things that are going to happen there that do not happen anywhere else, right? Paul says, in him. This is a favorite phrase throughout these opening chapters of Ephesians, in Christ, in him, over and over and over again. Christ Jesus is the focus. He is the goal. He is the measuring line for the church. It's in him. It's by him. It's through him. He says the whole building is being put together. That's all of us. We are each a living stone drawn by God to be placed in a special way alongside other living stones as he builds the church. You are a living stone, 
according to the New Testament. Not only here, but Peter calls you a living stone as well. And we need to get into this, this picture because it's an important one. That the Lord is saying, I'm bringing these stones from, from the quarry of faith. And I'm going to put them together in particular ways, in certain places, in certain rows, on certain lines. It matters where each stone fits together. Of course, we, if you're familiar with, with the Bible, you know that uh, 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 an analogy that is often used is that we're a body. And, and Paul's talked about this already, and he's going to keep talking about it. But the body having the different parts and how you can't have a body made up of only eyes or a body made up of only hands, that would be terrible and gross, right? And so you, 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 we have these particular spots where the Lord wants to bring us together and knit us together in special ways, if you've ever had the experience of being taken off of a malfunctioning ride at Disneyland, you know that backstage, is what they call it, is not as magical as what you normally see. I've had this opportunity a couple times, one time on Splash Mountain, like a million times on the new Rise of the Resistance ride. We were like a bad luck charm for that ride. It just kept dying. They had to take us off. But, you get, but especially Splash Mountain, I remember that, being taken off of Splash Mountain you're immersed right inside a mountain and all this stuff is happening and all the animals are singing at you and all the song and everything. And then you walk like through a door and like, it's just, it is just the plainest, most boring. I mean, no attention is, is given to the backstage of how it looks. It's just like, yeah, walk through that door and get out, you know? Uh, and so no attention given, nothing wonderful backstage at Disneyland. Uh, the attention is given all to the parts that the people are looking at, right? Front of house, front stage. Uh, Not so in the church, not even a little bit. God puts each of us together with the same care and precision and with all the attention that he has. He lavishes his attention on his people so that he can build this glorious church in every spot, in every corner, on every, you know, area as he's building it. One source defines this phrase being put together this way, fit by means of all the elaborate preparatory processes necessary. That's the Lord doing that. There's a lot of elaborate work God does to bring us together, to say, this is the group of people that I want to join together in a local fellowship so that they can be knit and strong and supporting one another and glorifying me in a special way. Uh, And and it's so important that we recognize that the, the Lord cares about where we go to church and our part in it. It's not that you can never look for another church or anything like that, but so often we're convinced that, well, the church I go to should be the one that serves me best, right? Or the one that checks certain boxes that I think are important. And hey, you know what? A lot of those boxes are really important. But what we're seeing here is a completely different perspective on where do I go to church. And the analogy that Paul is giving us here is that, well, the Lord wants to draw me among certain other living stones so that he can fit us together because he has particular good works that he wants me to walk in and us to walk in because he has an idea for my life, 
a plan for my life, a calling for my life, and not just me individually, but me among certain other believers. And it's a really beautiful thing because that means that I can trust the Lord to lead me to what church He wants me to go to and what body to be a part of. And that's a really wonderful thing because it takes the pressure off us and puts it on the Lord. As the Lord accomplishes this work, He will have to shape us so that we'll be close jointed with the stones around us. No, you know, no stone in a stone building comes as it is, right? Like, and just all lumpy and round in one part and sharp on this part. And like, all right, put it there and that's fine. What, what does the mason have to do? Has to sh- round off those edges. He has to shape it. He has to put it into place and know which parts must be removed and, and how to carve it and how it's going to fit nice and neat, Right? Being fit together means we're going to be carefully, snugly fit with the people around us, and we're going to be carefully aligned with the Lord, our cornerstone. You have to keep taking, you have to look at that piece of stone and bring it and say, is it square? Is it aligned with the cornerstone? Is it holding up the weight? Is it cracked? What do we need to do? All of these different attentions need to be given as those stones are fit together. The goal of this fitting together, according to Paul, is growth, right? He says it's, it's growing into a holy temple. So growth in what? Most commonly, the term church growth means the number of people who attend services, right? But is that what Paul means? Is that what he's talking about? Is that what he wants us to think about? Certainly, it is God's desire to add numerically to the church. But according to the book of Acts, he's the one who does that as he sees fit. It's not our responsibility to hit numbers or to make sure we have a certain percentage or anything like that. He says he adds to the church as we faithfully preach the gospel and just walk through the opportunities he sets before us to do. Paul will explain what he means by church growth in chapter 4, because in chapter 4, he's going to come back to this idea, and he's going to explain it a little bit more, but I'll give us a sneak peek here. He re- we read this in chapter 4, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. So Paul wasn't telling the Ephesians, you know, the, this building needs to grow to a certain number of people, like hit your quotas, people. That's not what's happening at all. The growth Paul is talking about is spiritual maturity, one that is measured by Christ's fullness. Uh, So, for example, we see Christ's mercy in the New Testament. Okay, how does my mercy measure up? We see Christ's prayer life. How does our church prayer life measure up? His joy, his kindness, his obedience. Because God is conforming us into his image after all. So as we grow, we will be maturing in all sorts of ways and more and more measuring up to the stature of Christ's fullness. That's the idea. When we think about church growth, We should be less concerned about bodies and seats and more concerned with whether we are aligned with our cornerstone so that proper growth can happen. That's what Paul wants us to think about. Now, he doesn't say this so we'll be discouraged. He's not saying, by the way, you don't measure up to Jesus. He prayed. How come you're not praying? He stayed up all night. When's the last time you stayed up all night? That's not what Paul's doing. You know, he doesn't want us to be ashamed of ourselves. That's not the the tenor of his discussion at all. He says, this is the process that is happening. The building is ongoing. 
The Lord is going to complete this work. He's accomplishing it. Look at verse 22. He says, in him you also are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. So God is doing an individual work in your life as a Christian. He's working in your heart. And he's also doing a corporate work in his church, specifically through local churches where Christian stones like you and me come together to be knit with one another, fit snug, built up. And so what that means is that isolation and Christianity just don't square. One source writes this, belonging to the visible church is not optional for followers of Christ. I saw on the news recently that some professor broke a record by living by himself underwater for a hundred days. I guess, okay. I I don't know what the prize is for that other than the bends maybe, but um, so, but but a lot of Christians are doing that spiritually. Living underwater, living under pressure, isolated, set, separated apart from community and from others, and especially since COVID. And it's, it's just not spiritually healthy for us to be isolated. And none of you are doing that. We are all here. We're all here. Now, this isn't a rebuke. It's a reminder to us that, okay, being a part of the church is not only about God's work in me. It's about God working in through me and in me in conjunction with a community of people that he has drawn to be together for specific purposes. Other living stones that he's brought out of the quarry of faith to be, okay, this is gonna be what we call Calvary Hanford. And let's join people's lives together and let's fit them snugly so that they can be together glorifying God and supporting one another and all of these different things. The plan is togetherness, snug and fit with our stones growing and glowing together. We're luminous stones. That's my, my reference for all you Breath of the Wild, Tears of the Kingdom fans, right? I know a lot of you are clocking a lot of Tears of the Kingdom hours right now, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. But we're luminous stones. Uh, it's a video game, and there are luminous stones in it. There you go. <laughs> Did you know there are real stones that glow in the dark, real luminous stones? And of course, we're called to be light in the dark, right? Glowing stones together, shining brightly as the glory of God works in and through our lives. This building that God does is not random or haphazard. It's skillful. It's purposeful. He's a master craftsman. He's working out his masterpiece through you. The Lord has a specific church he wants you to attend. He has people he wants you to connect with because he shapes each of us in special ways for this work he's accomplishing. And we're reminded here that the Holy Spirit, who is a down payment to us, who seals us, who comfort us, who instructs us in all truth, now he takes up residence in our hearts and among us in a special way when we're together. Officials say that Antony Gaudí's masterpiece will finally be finished in 2026. So the question is, when will we be done? Am I going to ever be done as, you know, a living stone? You know, the day is coming. It's coming for us individually when we go to meet the Lord. But there's also a day coming when the Lord will complete his church building project and we will be presented like a bride to the bridegroom. And we look forward to that day. It's interesting, all this work, all this calling, all this opportunity, all these spiritual realities. And yet, as Klein Snodgrass points out, this is a text that does not specifically ask anything of you. Do you notice that? This, these verses don't ask anything of you. It doesn't say, you're the church, so go do this. You're the church, so make sure this is happening. You're the church, so mark this list off. No, this, that's not what Paul says. Paul's whole point 
is that this is true already. This is what's happening. This is who you are if you're a Christian here tonight. This is what salvation does. This is the work that God started and is continuing and will accomplish. And so if you're a Christian here tonight, you are a part of this. You are a living stone and the Lord is drawing you and his desire is to shape you and fit you closely together in a certain place. Maybe it's here, maybe it's not here. That's the Lord's business as he guides you and directs you. Now, we have a part to play, of course. We are called to cooperate, to obey, to allow the Lord to do what he wants to do. We're living stones, not inanimate ones. We have roles and opportunities and tasks and assignments. Yep. Paul will explain some of those in the coming chapters. Our obedience is essential, important, meaningful. But this text is not about a list of things you need to do. It's an explanation of what God has done. That's what the whole opening of Ephesians is about, what God has done the power of his salvation, and all that that affects in your past, present, and future, in your community, in your relationship with God and others, how salvation just keeps unfolding in grace and in power and in magnificence as we realize what God has done and still wants to do. In hearing these things, we're invited to remember, to realize, to recognize, to remember who we were apart from Christ, And remember what he did to save us. To realize the truths of what the church really is. It's not a place that simply exists to meet my felt needs. It's a living spiritual building that I'm a vital part of. Where God is glorified. I become more like him. And the barriers between people and each other. And between people and God are broken down. And then finally we're invited to recognize more and more. Okay, how do I fit in the church God has brought me to be a part of, as he smooths off my edges, as he compresses us so that we can help bear the weight of the stones around us. Of course, Jesus Christ, our cornerstone, he bears the most weight. He's the one holding the building together. He's our cornerstone. He's the capstone too. But these are the realities of our Christian life in Christ and in the church. They're wonderful realities. Let's recognize them, walk in them, be empowered by them, cooperate with what God has designed He has desired, he has began in us and is continuing.